The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Avery Schmitz, intern at Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for May 13th, 2023. At midnight on Thursday, the Trump-era immigration policy, known as Title 42, expired, removing a barrier to asylum seekers that precipitated the forcible removal of some migrants over concerns of COVID-19 transmission. With the end of Title 42, concerns about border security and migrant well-being have received increased attention as the Biden administration faces an influx of asylum seekers at some, though not all, ports of entry. This renewed focus on immigration issues also raises questions about how the administration will confront harmful actors such as nativist militias, constitutional sheriffs, and cartels, among other persistent challenges along the southern border. To better understand the context for these border issues, I chose an interview from the Lawfare Archive from May 7, 2021. In this episode, Scott Anderson sat down with Dara Lind to discuss drivers of migration from Central American countries, the Biden administration's early response, and future concerns along the U.S.-Mexico border. I'm Scott R. Anderson, and this is the Lawfare Podcast for May 7, 2021. Over its first 100 days in office, the Biden administration has faced a difficult set of policy challenges in America's southern border, ranging from new waves of individuals driven to try and cross the border by the effects of the global pandemic to the often difficult legacy left by some of his predecessors' own draconian immigration policies. As a candidate, Biden channeled Democrats' outrage with former President Trump's actions on immigration and pledged to reverse them. But now that he is in office, will Biden find more common ground with his predecessor than expected? or tone over a new page on America's immigration policies. To discuss these and other questions, I sat down with Dara Lind, ProPublica's all-star immigration reporter. We talked about what drives immigration to the United States, how the Biden administration has responded thus far, and what it may all mean for the future of immigration policy in the United States. It's the Lawfare Podcast for May 7th. Dara Lind on immigration and the southern border. So, Dara, over the last several weeks, we have heard the situation at the southern border described in some camps as a crisis, in other contexts as a situation, as a challenging sort of set of scenarios that people are wrestling with. Tell us a little bit about what is actually happening at the border that's leading to all these different descriptors and the extent to which it really is a departure from the sorts of challenges we've seen on the border in recent months and, frankly, over the last several years. Sure. So, the thing to be aware of in like immigration and border coverage generally is that like 
there's often a lot of attention to the numbers of arrests going up. But that number in and of itself, all it tells you is how many people are trying to come to the United States and like illegally between ports of entry without papers, whatever, and got, you know, arrested by Border Patrol agents or presented themselves to Border Patrol agents, uh, which is often the case with people who are seeking asylum in a given month. That doesn't say anything about how many of those people are going to end up getting like released into the US, how many will ultimately get legal status because they're seeking asylum or something like that, or how capable the US system is of dealing with them. Like right now and for the last, you know, over a year, most people, all single adults, many families who are caught arrested at the US-Mexico border are just summarily returned to their home countries or sent back to Mexico in some cases. They don't have any chance to apply for asylum. They, you know, they're just kind of summarily expelled under this CDC order that was issued under the Trump administration and that the Biden administration has said it's keeping in place at least until, you know, COVID subsides as a regional issue. So that doesn't necessarily, that part of the numbers doesn't tell us anything about capacity getting strained, anything about crowding, anything about anyone getting into the US. As a matter of fact, because of this expulsion policy, it's actually easier to try to cross again once caught than it used to be, because you're no longer going through formal deportation proceedings, you're no longer being, you know, detained for a certain certain amount of time. So there's some evidence that, especially when you look at like the number of single adults crossing the border, that that doesn't reflect the number of individual people, it just, it means that some of them are trying more than once and getting double counted. So that's something to bear in mind. Now, where things get a lot more complicated and difficult in terms of US official system capacity is when we're talking about unaccompanied children and to a certain extent families, which is to say parents coming with children. The unaccompanied children question, there's a totally separate system built into the law for, you know, dealing with children who come to the US without their parents, or, you know, in the company of someone who isn't their legal guardian. And that requires the government to minimize the amount of time they spend in like immigration custody in border patrol custody, and to send them into the care of the Department of Health and Human Services, while it works to find their closest relative in the US to house them while they kind of pursue legal status. That because it's because it's governed by the separate law, a federal judge last year ruled that the Trump administration couldn't make them subject to this, you know, CDC expulsion policy. The Biden administration has chosen to keep that exemption in place. And meanwhile, the capacity was greatly constrained by the fact that like this is all congregate housing. Right. All of this, all of these kind of government facilities to house people, which is to say there were COVID constraints in place. Combine that with what is generally reputed to be a certain foot dragging on the part of the outgoing Trump administration's HHS in terms of expanding capacity for unaccompanied kids and what outgoing Trump officials characterized as a refusal on the part of incoming Biden officials to hit the ground running in that regard, or, you know, a certain amount of kind of bureaucratic sclerosis on the part of HHS. And you had what was seen in like March and April, right? This overcrowding of kids in border patrol facilities, you know, hundreds of kids in facilities that were supposed to be holding like 30 under COVID restrictions. That's where there was, I think, the biggest 
bipartisan consensus that there was a crisis. Now, the idea that something is going fundamentally wrong in the system is also to a certain extent there when we're talking about families, because there's, it's really not clear and probably not consistent uh, what is happening to families who present themselves to Border Patrol agents. There are some parts of Mexico that are just not receiving, that, that are refusing to take families back under this expulsion policy. The U.S. has, under Biden, you know, really not been willing to engage in large scale family detention. Uh, and so there are cases at the same time, cases of families getting shuttled elsewhere on the border and then getting expelled to like a place they've never been where they have no idea where they are. And stories of families just getting released into the, into the US without even like a court date or a number to call, just saying, please check in with ICE when you reach your destination. So immigration hawks point to that as a signal that the system is you know, totally beyond capacity. But that is a much more specific issue because you know, the systems that are in place are different for single adults versus families versus kids. And so when the system is getting overwhelmed, it differs for those three groups. That's a fantastic overview of kind of like the array of issues that I think are all tied together around this mm -hmm. complicated web that is the interests and policies of immigration and particularly around uh, the United States southern border. But before we dig into those a little bit more and zoom in, let me go to a thing that you actually hit on in a recent piece of yours, which oh, is yeah, that sure. – the fact that for American audiences, we tend to look at immigration a lot from the perspective of U.S. policy on the assumption that U.S. policy has a one-to-one -one direct correlation with immigration. It's something that's firmly within the United States control, and U.S. policy is a major driver. Uh, but of course, we all know there's a lot of factors in the world that drive immigration. What are the big external factors separate from U.S. policy that are driving the current kind of forces of immigration at the southern border? And in particular, what, if anything, has made them different? Is it, is it this is just a continuation of the pressures that have been there for many years? Or is there an aspect of the pandemic, of the current economic situation, all other political situations in the Western Hemisphere that are causing different types of immigration flows, different types of policy pressures, which the Biden administration now has to adapt to address? So... Obviously, it's very difficult to make broad pronouncements about why a large group of people choose to choose to get up and leave. And there certainly is a kind of capacity factor on this side as well, right? How well developed smuggling networks are, how well developed, you know, like word of mouth is from the US back to people's home countries, telling people, you know, it's, it's, it's safe to come, you can safely get in. These aren't necessarily things that are about policy, as a matter of fact, like, you know, it, it does seem that there can often be misunderstandings and misinformation there, either deliberately on the part of smugglers who will always want to make it seem like, you know, this is a limited time offer, the US is safer now, you know, it's like better to go to now than it's ever been or just people not understanding the complexities of policy because even, you know, most trained lawyers don't understand the complexities of immigration policy. But like, you know, even kind of beyond the question of going to the US, what are called often push factors, like the things that make you want to leave your home country. In the Northern Triangle, or what's called the Northern Triangle, the countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, we've seen a large emigration, not just to the US, but also 
with people seeking asylum in Mexico, some of them in other Central American countries, driven in part by, you know, continued feelings of lack of safety and lack of rule of law, uh, gang control of certain areas. This is an especially big problem in Honduras, you know, that, that essentially makes it impossible for the state to guarantee somebody's safety if a gang has decided to target them. There, especially in Guatemala, ha- has been really, really acute poverty and hunger for the last several years because of, you know, climate change driven failures of crops and agriculture. There's a very strong argument to be made that the Guatemalan immigration into the United States of the last few years is the first, you know, modern climate migration that the U.S. has personally had to deal with. And then on top of that, you know, there was a pandemic in 2020 that first suppressed immigration to a certain extent. You saw this through the whole region. Whole countries were on lockdown. Public transit wasn't operating. People didn't necessarily want to like get up and go and interact with a bunch of strangers. But what eventually became clear after a few months was that the even more urgent problem was the total economic collapse caused by the pandemic, especially in the informal sectors of the economy, which is where a lot of, you know, people living on subsistence level in these countries would would have been making their money. So that is both probably being reflected in some people who might have thought that they could stick it out in their home countries and survive, realizing that they had really nothing left to lose. And some people who had already been planning to leave in 2020 and then had to defer their plans because of the pandemic, taking the first opportunity they can. So all of that was kind of clear in even before the presidential election, you know, even before there was any talk about like President Biden or, or there was, but it was purely hypothetical. And then in the time between the election and the inauguration, Central America got hit with two really bad hurricanes. So that kind of on top of everything else, meaning that people who might have had very little left to lose beforehand now like didn't even have homes has almost certainly meant that the you know I've talked to people who have said that the combined impact of those you know quote unquote push factors is higher than it's really ever been before in recent memory and there is an established you know because there are at this point established routes to get people who want to leave to the United States it's re- it's it makes sense that those roots are being utilized. So let's go and talk about the Biden administration's approach to this a little bit now that we've got that that context. A theme that we've come back to on this podcast time and time again, and and you've heard it elsewhere in lawfare and elsewhere in the media, I think is very true to those of us who've worked in government, is that the first 100 days of any new administration is a big adjustment period. You see an administration come in with certain targeted policies they fully intend to change, but then often undertake widespread review of existing policies, keeping the core staying stable for the most part uh, until they can complete those reviews, decide what of the prior administration's work they're going to scuttle, what they're going to keep, what they're going to change direction on. And so you see a lot more continuity in the early days between administrations, more so than you might expect, even when uh, from the heated rhetoric and, and sharp policy disagreements that often come out during the election season. And what have we seen so far in terms of movement on the immigration policy front from the Biden administration? Is it a lot of 
the situation where these policies are under review, they're still being considered, they're being kept in place temporarily? Or have we seen some more firm decisions either to keep parts of it more permanently or to jettison other parts of it in favor of policy turns? Obviously, immigration is a heated topic, sharp partisan disagreements there. Um, and we also saw, it's, it's worth noting, you know, the kind of point person, or at least a major point person on border issues from the administration, a very respected uh, former ambassador and diplomat, Roberta Jacobson, uh, leave around the 100-day mark in a way that was kind of framed as being pre-intended and that was kind of a prior arrangement, but certainly does mark a- another transition in the leadership around these issues that can be add on to kind of a little bit of the uncertainty. So what has been the Biden administration's kind of general tack? How high on the list of priorities have these immigration issues been placed and, and how effectively are they steering their way towards whatever new course they may be trying to arrive at? I think the best way to sum this up and understanding that there, you know, is so much more to immigration policy, even, you know, when you're just focusing on what the executive branch can do on its own, so much more than, you know, just what's happening at the border, but that obviously, like, because border policy is often events driven, it's, you know, it it is likely both the politics and the policy are likely to shift based on how much attention there is to how many people are coming and you know, based on how much that is straining resources, that that, you know, it's it's not surprising that that ends up taking up a lot of the a lot of the attention. But the Biden administration in general took care of the things they could take care of quickly, very quickly, and has taken a much more gradual approach to taking care of everything else. You know, there was a big flurry of executive actions in the first week of the couple of weeks of the administration, some of which were much more symbolic than others, some of which were not symbolic, but still retroactive and small scale, like the family reunification task force that has, you know, recently been in the news for reunifying the first four of, you know, a few hundred families that it's expected to be able to, to reunite, which, you know, I think that family separation obviously holds a, a very large spot you know, on moral grounds and the public understanding of the Trump administration. But when you're talking about immigration, it's so, you know, when you talk about border stuff, you're talking about thousands of people in a month. So it's just, it's a much more finite, much less sweeping thing. But some of the Biden administration's actions in the first couple of weeks really were quite substantial, most notably their effort to overhaul interior enforcement deportation policy. It's a little bit easier to do that than it was because there's been, during the pandemic, you know, ICE was a little less aggressive in making arrests. And there were certainly pretty sustained efforts to reduce the capacity in immigration detention. But the Biden administration, you know, tried to go through with a 100-day moratorium on deportations. That got held up in federal court. But has been able to put in place, at least provisionally, a policy that goes even further than the last iteration of Obama's deportation policy. President Obama had a very had inherited a system that could identify and deport unauthorized immigrants very efficiently, spent several years uh, making various levels of effort to limit who agents had the ability to take into custody to better reflect like what they felt were the correct priorities for enforcement because you know a dragnet getting whoever of 11 million people is not necessarily the most intentional policy and didn't really succeed until the last years of his administration in coming up with a policy that actually was being followed on the ground level so the Biden administration has taken that you know most effective most restrictive policy and taken it 
you know, even a little bit further, uh, there were lots of complaints from ICE agents to right-wing media, largely to right-wing media. There really haven't been a lot of whistleblowers to, to mainstream media yet saying that they can't, you know, they can't arrest anybody. They have to get sign off from, you know, 18 gajillion people. They're really being, you know, handcuffed in their ability to do their jobs. But it does seem that that has had a pretty substantial effect on people living in the U.S. on their likelihood of getting deported. Now, on the border, it's been a much slower going. The Biden administration did create a way for the 10,000 or so people who were uh, sent back to Mexico under the Trump administration's Remain in Mexico policy, which gave people a court date in the United States, but then sent them to Mexico to wait for that court date and resulted in a lot of people not being able to, you know, effectively fight their cases, often getting kidnapped upon their return to Mexico, et cetera. Uh, the Biden administration both, you know, stopped putting people into that program and created a way for people who had been waiting to basically pre-register themselves, come into the United States and be given like temporary, you know, you're allowed to stay here while your court case goes through. But for the most part, people have been, you know, expelled under the CDC order still. There is not yet a timeline on when that's going to be changed. The Biden administration says it's deferring to the CDC, which seems a little disingenuous to those of us who have been covering the issue, because it's widely known at this point that the CDC didn't ask for this policy, the Trump administration and their DHS did. So that's not to say that the Biden administration is not in fact deferring to the CDC and that something has somehow changed. But it is the locus of some frustration, especially as we keep hearing stories of people being put in danger after getting expelled in the same way they were under this Remain in Mexico policy. And, you know, the really hard work of undoing regulations, of figuring out what to do in the various litigation battles over Trump administration policies, you know, it, I, listeners to this podcast probably know very well that as a general rule, the Department of Justice doesn't love to just drop all of the cases <laughs> against a former president's policies and say, well, new, new guy, now we won't bother with any of this. So there are still a lot of questions about how quickly the, some of that is going to get dismantled, which is especially relevant in immigration because the DOJ is not just responsible for that, but also for this you know, not fully independent immigration court system where the attorney general has the ability to like write new precedents at will, essentially. That is not something that they've been, you know, using terribly aggressively. And it's, this is where we're probably going to need to see them like fully staffing up a government and, you know, determining what their, what their priorities are, where people are willing to spend political capital before we really get a sense of just how aggressive the rollback will be. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? 
Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. 
And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So you mentioned a few times now this expulsion order, what people often refer to as a Title 42 authority. That's, of course, reference to the, the title of the U.S. Code that relevant statutory provisions exist in, although there's a lot more in Title 42, so that, that's not the only way the phrase will be used. But describe for us a little bit about what this Title 42 authority is intended to accomplish, how it accomplishes it, and then the way it's been applied. Because a lot of what we've heard reports on that you've touched on already, already is this idea of inconsistency, that it's 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 being applied in a little bit of an ad hoc manner, um, was under the Trump administration, and, and there are continuing reports under the Biden administration. Why is that? And, and is that a inevitability of this sort of authority, or are there ways it could be done in a little bit more of a regular fashion um, that just aren't being availed by the Biden administration as of yet? So it's honestly really hard to talk counterfactually about Title 42, like in any sense other than how we've seen it applied in the last year plus, because it wasn't a thing that people were aware of. This was like, you know, Stephen Miller had a reputation for knowing immigration law really, really well. And that may or may not generally be an accurate description, but this is absolutely the kind of thing that Stephen Miller was really good at, finding parts of existing U.S. law that gave the executive branch a lot of authority to do something that hadn't previously been pushed on and pushing on them really hard. And so the, the text of the actual law doesn't say you can close the border to asylum seekers verbatim. What it says is that the CDC has the ability, or like the, the executive branch, has the ability to prohibit the introduction of any person or thing that could introduce an infectious disease into the U.S. Now, COVID-19 had, of course, already been introduced into the U.S. at the time that this order was issued. The argument there is that allowing infected people to enter the U.S. would further exacerbate the spread. In particular, the kind of policy argument was that because after getting apprehended, migrants are held in border patrol facilities, you know, whichever ones are available, and that like that, you know, we've often seen over the last few years cases in which those facilities have gotten overcrowded, that that would pose health risks, not only to the migrants themselves, but also to border patrol agents, to border communities, if they were ultimately released after having been held in that kind of housing. And so the CDC prohibited the crossing of people between ports of entry, the, the, the illegal entry. It, there were separate agreements that the U.S. had with Mexico and ha, you know, has with Mexico and Canada restricting trade and travel for pandemic purposes kind of at ports of entry. But the CDC order was just 
limited to unauthorized migration, which certainly seems like an aggressive, if not unanticipated, if not wholly contrary use of this law. The existing immigration law says, look, generally, yes, you're supposed to prevent unauthorized immigrants from arriving in the U.S., but we have an international law obligation to not return people to a country where they're going to be persecuted. And so there is this, you know, fairly bedrock obligation to allow people to seek some form of humanitarian protection, whether that's asylum or there are a couple of less common, lesser forms of protection that don't give you like full legal status, but still allow you to stay in the U.S. The Trump administration's view was that Title 42 superseded all of that. And so what we've had, what we've seen, and, you know, we talked through a little bit how that, how the implementation of that has changed over the last several months with unaccompanied kids getting exempted in fall. And then the kind of question around what is happening to families where it's pretty clear that in theory, they're subject to Title 42, but in practice, that's a decision being made based on where they're apprehended, what space there is, etc. There isn't, this should not be mistaken for any kind of like triage move. The entire point of Title 42 is that people who are getting expelled are getting expelled within like 90 minutes. Uh, There isn't time to be running back, you know, to be running checks on them, determining that they don't have a case for asylum, that kind of thing. You know, the concern is that this is For one thing, as we mentioned earlier, making it easier for people to try to cross again, which has the tendency to overwhelm Border Patrol agents because they just have to catch more people more of the time. Second of all, that with the current situation in which families may or may not be expelled, but children definitely won't be, that it's creating something of a perverse incentive for parents to send their children to cross the border alone because they know that that way they will at least be safe. We don't know how widespread that is. And it's it's easy to assume that that's uh, the entire unaccompanied kids population. We don't really have evidence for that, but it's definitely, you know, a foreseeable but unintended consequence of the current situation. And then more broadly, there's just the question of, okay, the U.S. is vaccinating really aggressively. The president has said that July 4th should be a solid grand reopening date for the U.S., If the justification for this is not migration management, because that's not what the statute allows, but instead public health, how long is this going to be allowed to stay in place before it just becomes obvious that it's a legal fig leaf and that it's staying in place because the Biden administration doesn't want too many people coming to the border at once? And so the question of how long it remains in place and what comes after is you know, a really live one and something that the government for understandable reasons doesn't particularly want to be publicly discussing, but that is just raising a lot of questions about how you go from this extremely hawkish policy to a less hawkish one without sending the message intentionally or otherwise that the border is quote unquote open. This question of asylum you've hit on is really fundamental to a lot of this, right? Because uh, it is the underlying international legal obligation, as you noted, a set of treaties saying that the United States has to entertain these requests and grant them where, where various criteria are met. There are some exceptions of those that people can argue the extent to which they do and don't apply. But certainly as the pandemic 
uh, at a minimum, as the pandemic fades, the basis for avoiding that obligation will also go away. This has been an issue where we saw the Trump administration push pretty aggressively against the asylum process, both their criterion, eligibility, uh, their obligations to extend it in various contexts. How much have we seen the Biden administration be able to roll that back or attempt to roll that back and open up these opportunities for asylum, the restraint of which really was a politically controversial issue, something that we saw, again, saw this sharp partisan divide on with a lot more, uh, many more Democrats seeing asylum as kind of a much more fundamental U.S. moral and international obligation. Has the Biden administration turned on this rhetorically? Has it turned on it rhetorically and substantively? Or, or are we still seeing that continuity, at least temporarily, in this early period? This is where I think there's the biggest, what you might call a delta between what the Biden administration says it's doing and where it's actually uh, made change. The rhetoric is absolutely that we have a fundamentally different approach to asylum than the previous administration did, that the U.S. is now resuming its place as a global model for the defense of human rights, etc. But when I was talking earlier about the, you know, often DOJ centered, slower regulatory changes, litigation stances, management of the immigration courts, a lot of that is about asylum and about the asylum restrictions that the Trump administration put in place. One of the effects of the Remain in Mexico policy and it's, you know, and then the Title 42 policy is that people who might have qualified for asylum the first time they entered the United States will probably, unless there are major changes, not be eligible for asylum by the time they actually make it in front of a judge because there have been so many changes to restrict, in particular, asylum eligibility for people who aren't being persecuted by their governments, who are, you know, victims of domestic abuse or victims of gang violence, uh, who are targeted because the gang came after a member of their family and then decided the whole family had to die. There are lots of, you know, kind of as a general matter, the current asylum and refugee regime was built after World War II with a very post-Holocaust model of what persecution looked like. And as we've seen, you know, in this century, that it's not as simple as is the state persecuting you or is the state protecting you? Uh, there have been a lot of attempts to kind of figure out how that new reality applies to the framework. And yeah, it, you know, it's often been geographically inconsistent and arbitrary and a big tug of war between various circuit courts and the federal government. But the Trump administration's solution was to, you know, through everything from like what the training curriculum for asylum officers was to how much they were paid to what regulations said about whether someone can be eligible for asylum if they don't meet XYZ criteria. A lot of that is, you know, still on the books. There wasn't the aggressive use of the Congressional Review Act to undo some of Trump's last minute regulations that I think a lot of people were expecting, uh, partly because there, I think, was an assumption that everything was going to end up getting held up in court. And so now it's a question of, you know, what that litigation stance is going forward. But for the moment, you know, a lot of the regula regulations are still in place. The precedent decisions written by the Trump DOJ that really limited how you could define persecution are still on the books. And because a lot of asylum cases ultimately get appealed and appealing takes time, and because there's such a backlog in immigration courts, 
it's not quite as simple as people are getting deported today who, you know, wouldn't be if they reset, you know, some of these Trump policies. But it's certainly true that these cases are, you know, continuing to move forward under an interpretation of the law that the president has said he doesn't share. So let's zoom in on one set of populations kind of in the United States where we have seen some movement by the Biden administration. And this is the variety of groups that are under what's called temporary protected status or TPS, as is commonly referred to, which which is essentially a, a legal forbearance of enforcement, usually extended in contexts that are similar to refugee context. We have a very vulnerable population with the idea being the executive branch is not going to enforce immigration law against these people because sending them back would be inhumane or otherwise otherwise contrary to U.S. policy interests, but it is, is instead going to allow them to stay on a temporary basis. That's what the T stands for. Although in practice, there are many of these groups that have been in the United States for decades at this point. What has the Biden administration's approach been? How And how sharp a departure has it been from the Trump administration who did target these groups and specifically say, we're going to try and enforce the T in the TPS status by setting end dates, uh, although those efforts, once again, got caught up in litigation and largely did not come to fruition, by my understanding? Yes. So the thing that makes TPS different is that instead of it being attached to people's circumstances or their legal status, it's t- it's attached to countries. So, you know, when something happens in a foreign country, like a natural disaster, a civil war, or other form of violence, like one of the one of the countries that President Biden has newly granted TPS to is Myanmar because of the, you know, coup there and the unrest and, su- and suppression following that. So things like when things like that happen, you know, the government has the authority to say, Everybody who's currently here can apply for, you know, this like temporary renewable work permit. And you'll, you know, we're willing to allow you to stay here until things have gotten back to normal or your country is recovered. The problem is that the kind of countries where, you know, something like an earthquake or a hurricane would be really debilitating uh, or that are going to, you know, find themselves in civil war. It's not like, you know, at the end of the 18 or 24 months that the government has granted TPS for things will be back to normal. It usually takes countries, especially poorer countries, a long time to recover. And so what you end up with is a situation where by the time you could feasibly argue that recovery has happened, you have a population that is now well settled in the United States that may have had kids here, may have gotten married you know, here that may own a home, has a job, has a career that they've been attempting to progress in. And so prior to the Trump administration, there just really wasn't the political appetite to say, well, you know, this isn't the way it's supposed to be working. So we're going to tell these people from, you know, Honduras who have had TPS for 20 years that now they need to leave until the Trump administration, which was perfectly happy to tell them that. The irony is that that move made the reality of TPS much clearer to a lot of people, not least TPS holders themselves, who really started organizing in response to the Trump administration's efforts, because, you know, it it threw into relief how precarious their ultimate situation was and made it clear that, you know, even though TPS has been around for longer than, say, the DACA program, that there is a very similar dynamic in place, that People are protected, but only as long as the right sort of president is in office, so to speak. And so the Biden administration has absolutely taken, you know, a a 180 on unwillingness to grant TPS for most most of the countries that Trump tried to end TPS for, you know, are 
as you mentioned, you know, thanks to litigation, that kind of got pushed out of the window where the Trump administration could do anything about it. And the Biden administration is expected to, you know, just re-grant those or re-extend those protections. He's also granted TPS to Venezuelans in the U.S. who got on Trump's like last night in office, he gave them some lesser form of protection, um, but it wasn't very well publicized. Nobody really knew about it. So, and this could really benefit a lot of people in the U.S. because there have been a lot of Venezuelans who have been fleeing, you know, the gradual collapse of Venezuelan economy, healthcare system, et cetera, even pre-pandemic, followed by the pandemic. And, you know, also, as I mentioned to Myanmar, because it's the easiest lever for the president to pull that is unquestionable statutorily, like unlike DACA, for example, there is no argument that the president is not allowed to grant TPS. There's been a lot of pressure, you know, to have it extended to much larger groups, to use it for Haiti or Cuba, or even for, you know, people who have recently left Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, because of the, you know, impact of the pandemic there. If you went far enough with it, you could use it as a, like a de facto legalization program with the big caveat that it doesn't have any route to permanent legal status. And that's the other thing that's been interesting about this re-embrace of TPS is that nobody thinks TPS for everybody is actually the right solution. Everybody thinks that it has to be coupled with, you know, an opportunity to actually become like full permanent residents of the United States at some point, if you're going to be letting people stay here for years and years and years. But that is ultimately going to be in the hands of Congress. And so without Congress being able to pass like a big legalization package, this continued expansion of these very, you know, in between liminal forms of status are likely to proliferate. A related policy where we have seen a degree of waffling by the Biden administration, or at least seemingly waffling, has been the question of the refugee cap, the uh, number of refugees the United States brings in each year, which the Trump administration was aggressively criticized for reducing to unprecedented lows um, over this multiple years in office. The Biden administration, Biden campaign, I should say, made pretty explicit promises about bringing it back to pre-Trump levels, to the relatively high levels comparatively of the Obama administration, although historically there have been higher. But then we saw some initial reports a few weeks ago that the Biden administration was actually going to keep the refugee cap at Trump levels after a pretty quick and fierce reaction by political activists and folks in the media. Uh, we saw the Biden administration say, no, that was a miscommunication. In fact, we're still evaluating our policy. And they've since come out and said, with kind of a middle of the road Goldilocks solution of a level that is substantially higher than the Trump years, but not at the level of the Obama years. What does this whole incident tell us about how the Biden administration is is approaching this issue set? How did the refugee cap politics get tied into this border crisis? And what does it mean that the Biden administration had this sort of back and forth or apparent back and forth in its policy formulation around what really was a pretty central issue for a lot of people in the election and certainly a central criticism of the prior administration? So I think I'd, I'd characterize the ultimate decision that the Biden administration announced this past week a little bit differently. It's yes, if you look at it, the number is not as high as the annual level in the last couple of years of the Obama administration. But it is the level that they when President Biden was running was a candidate for the presidency. He said he was going to increase the refugee cap to 125,000 people, which is 20% higher than the highest year of the Obama administration. 
25% higher, in fact. So a really substantial, and like, given, given how slow resettlement was during the Trump administration, would have been a very, very big change that would have had to, you know, be put in place very, very rapidly. When President Biden got into office, he actually went even further and he told Congress, I'm going to retroactively for the second half of this year, issue a new declaration. The Trump administration issued one in October of last year. I'm going to issue a new one. It's going to supersede it. And it's going to say that for the second half of this year, we're going to settle half the number that's my target for next year. We're going to settle 68,500 people, which was even more aggressive. And then that, and then they just didn't do that. And instead, you know, as you mentioned, they came out with this declaration that changed some of the other parts of the refugee policy that Trump had set for the year. There were like, in addition to the very low number, there were conditions that made it very difficult for people from certain parts of the world to qualify as refugees. And the Biden administration got rid of those, but didn't change the number. And so actually said in this new declaration, you know, the cap will be and quoted the old numbers. So it's not like, you know, I think, frankly, it's the administration's like knee-jerk response that it was a misunderstanding that the press mischaracterized it was their, you know, their attempts to make it seem like they weren't backpedaling. It seems there was nothing in that initial communication that indicated that they were going to reevaluate. But what they have come out with is the is what they told Congress they would be doing in February. Is that sixty eight thousand very aggressive number? And like everybody acknowledges, including the administration, including President Biden, that they're not going to hit that this year. That it is aspirational. That isn't to say that it's purely symbolic. The big question when it looked like they weren't going to increase the cap for this year was how on earth they expected to settle 125,000 refugees in the next year when they didn't have that capacity built up. The refugee resettlement process in the U.S. is like both, you know, there's this huge long vetting system. You have to have infrastructure in the parts of the world where you are looking to resettle refugees. The Obama and Trump administrations, for example, really didn't put a priority on refugee resettlement in Central America. So if the Biden administration really wants to, is is serious about what it keeps saying, which is that it wants to expand legal pathways for Central American asylum seekers so that they don't have to come to the border without papers, like that's something that it's going to have to, you know, put effort into. And on the U.S. side, there are, you know, nonprofit organizations who are responsible for finding housing, finding jobs, you know, they are taking care of their refugee for the first few months that they're here. They get them set up with, you know, learning English. And those organizations, because they get paid by the federal government for how many people they resettle, got absolutely bled to death under the Trump administration. Large numbers of layoffs, just that infrastructure got totally attenuated. And so there is, you know, a big question of how quickly that will be able to get built back up. Like, you know, the, the employees who are still there now have to, you know, find volunteers who are willing to house the refugees that are finally beginning to come in. And it's just, that is going to take a while to do. So it's going to be interesting to see how close they come to 68,000 in the second half of this year. Uh, it's certainly going to be an indication of how aspirational the 125,000 number is for next year, or frankly, if they end up backing off that a little bit and go for a slightly uh, less aggressive number that they're more likely to hit because they see, you know, how difficult it is to get things started back up.
something we have heard a lot from the Biden administration after inauguration has been, we are trying to build back up a system that was totally destroyed. And, and that's not just about refugee resettlement, that's immigration in general. And I, I think that there are still really open questions about what they mean about that, because it's not as if there wasn't widespread reporting under the Trump administration about just how thorough the changes taking place were. So, you know, maybe they know something that they're not making public, or maybe they overestimated the extent to which political will alone could reverse things, or maybe they overestimated the extent to which there actually was political will in the administration, which gets to the politics thing you're mentioning about this flip-flop. Like, there's nothing policy-wise that says that refugee resettlement has to be eliminated if too many people are coming to the U.S. border. The concern, though, is that because of this, like we were talking a little bit earlier about the role of perception of U.S. policy in bringing people. And the problem with this is once you start getting worried about sending the sending a message of openness, it becomes an argument against literally any policy liberalization, because anything could, in theory, be exploited to send the message that the border is open. And so it makes sense politically that there was that fear in the Biden administration that it would encourage people to come. It certainly makes sense politically that the Biden administration found itself on the back foot on the border issue more so than it anticipated. And therefore, some of the political appetite for taking other aggressive moves on immigration was reduced. You know, frankly, what I keep hearing is that Joe Biden has a very well-established inner circle of people he trusts. And immigration has never been as important to him as some other issues. And immigration is not as important to the people around him as some other issues. And so therefore, it's easy for that to be the thing they lose appetite on. But, you know, Biden's Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, actually really, which and the State Department is responsible for a lot of the refugee resettlement process, actually does find refugee resettlement to be an issue he's willing to spend political capital on. And, you know, we've heard that in some of the reporting that's come out of the White House, that Lincoln was really instrumental in pressuring the administration not to back down from something that it had cast in the campaign as a moral obligation, because he understands it both as something the U.S. ought to do and has the capacity to do, and as one of the strongest concrete commitments the U.S. can make to other countries that it cares about the persecuted. Well, we spent most of our conversation talking about the Biden administration, but before we part ways, I do want to spend a little bit of time on that other branch of government that has a lot to say about immigration policy, uh, which is the United States Congress. Do they do they have a lot to say? <laughs> they have the ca- capacity to say a great deal yes. <laughs> if they so yes. choose, but they so rarely do. You know, we have seen the idea of comprehensive immigration reform flutter around for two decades, three decades, really longer in various ways uh, as kind of a bit of a bugaboo, something that people are are say, this is the year we're going to try and do it. And it never really comes fully to fruition, although inevitably there is legislation that touches on certain key issues. Where is immigration fitting on the legislative agenda for the current Congress, uh, if at all? And what are the odds we're going to see legislative fixes to any of these questions that the Biden administration is wrestling with and which we should admit to a substantial extent, its hands are tied both by the resources provided, the authorities provided, and uh, you know the other limitations that ultimately do come back to Congress, who who sets those parameters. The Biden administration 
around the time of inauguration, very suddenly, without having talked about it much during the campaign, but like very aggressively started touting the idea that it was introducing a day one comprehensive immigration bill that was going to legalize pretty much everybody in the US without papers, without like sacrificing much on enforcement. And it was kind of always understood, like nobody thought that Joe Biden was going to be calling up you know, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi every day and asking them when they were going to pass this particular bill. Like, it's been known for ages that the Biden administration's first priorities for Congress were going to be the COVID relief package that is already passed and the infrastructure package that is now being debated. And that, like, you know, as now Vice President Kamala Harris said during the campaign, you generally only get a couple of big bills in a Congress. The amount of effort kind of spent on hyping that bill was... It never really reflected uh, what the actual path forward would be. And, you know, you already aren't seeing a whole lot of talk about that in Congress. The, the other kind of reason, in addition to it being just very, in addition to the Biden administration already having a pretty full plate, that there wasn't so much excitement is that there's recently been a loss of appetite among, or, you know, immigration advocates have finally persuaded themselves that the coalition politics of comprehensive immigration reform were wrong, right? The logic on tying everything together in a big bill is that there are certain constituencies that care more about parts of this than others. And if you get everybody together, everybody will be pushing for the bill. And so there will be a lot of people with reasons to vote for it and nobody with a reason to vote against it. Obviously, that did not happen in 2006. It did not happen in 2007. It did not happen, you know, when President Obama promised to introduce an immigration bill in the first year of his presidency and then didn't it did not happen in 2013 when an immigration when a comprehensive immigration bill did pass the Senate. So the politics of it had been to a certain extent tried and failed. And so advocates came into this year going, we're going to push for Congress to legalize as many people as possible as quickly as possible. So, you know, the focus shifted from legalize everyone to, you know, passed the DREAM Act, um, which, you know, at this point has been introduced in Congress for 20 years, you know, passed the targeted farm worker legalization bill that's been batted around back and forth a bunch of times, uh, largely because there are some Republicans who are in favor of it because it serves ag interests. And as long as we're doing COVID relief, let's talk about legalizing essential workers, because a lot of the rhetoric praising, you know, people like housekeepers and grocery clerks hasn't resulted in any level of protection for these people from deportation whatsoever. So, you know, that last is a more novel idea and obviously a little bit of a broader population, but there was certainly kind of the appetite. Oh, and, and let's take care of people with, who are currently in the U S with TPS. Let's give them a path to legal status. So those ideas are still floating around. Like the house has voted on taking votes on a couple of them. The big question, of course, as there is with everything legislative, is can you fit this into reconciliation and are Senate Democrats willing to do that? The answer to the first question has been a little bit hot and cold. The answer to the second question has been a little bit hot and cold, depending on the first one. The president has sometimes sounded a little bit hesitant about whether you can use reconciliation to legalize people. It's definitely going to be something that you know, advocates are going to be pushing for, but in a Congress that is putting so much on its plate, it's just not super clear in the absence of a finding that like, yes, you can, you know, do this very easily with very little pain to your CBO score, et cetera, et cetera. You can do this through reconciliation. 
it is not necessarily a big fight that I would anticipate Congress to want to pick in 2021. Well, with that uh, prediction in place, I think we're going to have to leave our conversation there. Dara Lynn, thank you so much for joining us today on the Lawfare Podcast. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please take a moment to rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you might be listening. This podcast was engineered by Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo and edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Our music was performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.